0: All right, ready? Here we go.
1: Okay. You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University.
0: What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. As always, I am your host, Matthew Kroll. I am the Academic Programs Manager here in the Purdue Department of Philosophy. And joining me today is renowned French scholar, Lachey Davison. Bonjour, Lachey. <laughs> Bonjour. No. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. It's my buddy Lacey Davidson of the Department of Philosophy here. How are you, Lacey? I'm good. How are you? Actually, I'm well, thank you, but actually, let me correct myself. Joining me today is Dr. Lacey Davidson who recently defended successfully, I hope.
1: hmm Yes, very successfully. Okay. <laughs> oh. Lots of
0: good reviews. Oh, with, oh. <laughs> with Merit, uh, who recently, Lacey recently defended her dissertation here, and so now has joined the ranks of those of us that have PhDs. But, Lacey, thanks for making the time for us. Glad to have you in the studio.
1: Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: What do you think about the studio, the Grindstone studio?
1: It's pretty fancy, you know, really... And the seventh floor of Beering at Purdue University, we got a nice view of Great. the bell tower yeah. from the window, yeah, looking, looking good,
0: all hail, too old purdue <laughs> you get you do you realize you get like a special like gift certificate for dinner just for mentioning like Purdue Landmarks exactly. and you're the only person yeah. who's ever mentioned the bell tower by name, so thank you
1: well, now I can walk underneath it, I think yeah. right. <laughs> That's this right. is like the first right. thing my uh, undergraduate roommate, so I room with undergraduates when I first moved here, okay. and she was very pretty superstitious. So yeah, she yeah. warned me about this many times Don't uh, go to the not bell to tower. go under the bell tower, but now Or you'll fail. I think I can.
0: Nice, well done. We should go take a picture of you walking underneath <laughs> the bell tower after this. Um no, that's awesome. All right, pulling it back together just so the mass audience we have out there doesn't think that I've completely lost track, um, Lacey. The title of your dissertation—it's long. Mm-hmm. I wrote it down. Let's hope that like I get it. Like any good dissertation. Like any good be... dissertation. There's multiple.
1: Not a colon though. I missed the colon. But uh, okay.
0: Darn. I was just going to say there's multiple <laughs> points of, pu- of punctuation. There's multiple punctuation marks and no colon. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yes, you recently defended the following dissertation. That's also racist. Entity-type pluralism, responsibility, and liberatory norms, correct? That's right. Awesome. We are going to circle our way back around to that for sure. I want to talk to you about that and also talk to you about what's next for you, because as I understand, you have you have something next lined up, correct?
1: I do, yes. I'll be joining uh, the philosophy department at California Lutheran University as a visiting assistant professor in the fall.
0: That's awesome. That's so awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. And I should say, I don't know a harder worker or anyone who is more deserving from this department, so that's awesome. We're oh, really, thank you. really happy for you. Best of luck. We will circle back to the dissertation and, you know, just... Your outlook for the next stage of your career, but as always on the grindstone, I like to start with the following question.
1: Okay. I'm ready.
0: What is the nature of life? No, I'm kidding. That's not it at all. I, I don't even know why I attempted to ask that question, because I wouldn't understand any answer to it. Um, but what I do like to ask people, though, is why philosophy? So at what point in your life, as a student or as a person, did you, Lacey, decide to study philosophy? What was that moment, that text? Was there a course you took or a particular instructor, professor? Can you recall? Was there a story as to why you chose to become a professional philosopher?
1: Yeah, I think there were a lot of forces sort of guiding me toward being a philosopher. But nice. uh, one was that I was uh, originally pre-law and undergraduate. And at my okay. university, uh, there was no official pre-law track. But it was just sort of known that you should do philosophy and political science. Right, and right. So those were my two majors in college. Um, so I kind of came in. I Where think was I, this at, if you don't mind my asking? Wittenberg University in Springfield, Ohio. Nice. Um, and so I had, I think maybe even declared right away that those would be my two majors. Um, but I also took a, sem- a freshman seminar. So these were non-disciplinary seminars that were just kind of like an introduction to the university. Um, my introductory seminar was with a philosopher, Dr. Martinez Signs. Um, And the class was called The Moral of the Story. So we read, like, literature um, and talked about some of, like, the things that we could learn. So we read. That's awesome. um, That's right uh, up my,
0: sorry to cut you off, but being in the philosophy and literature program, I love that. I love that. Especially for an intro level course. I love um, that sort of application of philosophy to film or literature yeah i think that's a great way to lure people in to say like you can apply this and sort of reserve the you know <laughs> the nitty-gritty of like you know argumentation or whatever for a, yeah a later date but so okay you were taking no this class. it's
1: it's just so funny because i what, at the end of the class okay so we read um uh, so you said like oh literature is a great way but we read some hard-hitting stuff. We read oh, really? uh, Teaching to Transgress by Bill Hooks. We read oh. The Pedigogy of the Oppressed, Paulo Freire.
0: Um, oh wow, okay we
1: read the biography of Malcolm X. Nice, and so nice. we were really great book Alex um, Haley. Reading some things that were um coming from northern Minnesota sort of challenging my worldview. This was maybe the first time that I That's awesome. Was reading Um, works by uh, black scholars and so this was sort of my first introduction um, to sort of I guess what I would think of as critical philosophy um, or like philosophy born of struggle as Leonard Harris would call it Um, so really my first introduction to philosophy was this kind of philosophy so Um, and then as I continued on in the program um, the philosophy program at Wittenberg is like a what I would call a justice-based philosophic education. Nice, okay. So it's about um, the lived experience of people's lives uh, and the social features, social structures that make those lives um, worse, and how can we use philosophy as a methodology um, to think more clearly about those um, social features, the way we interact with each other, the sort of structure. Of knowledge and the way we share information. How can we think about all those things with respect to oppression um, and the ways in which people's lives are less free um, in virtue of these social structures? So that's how I sort of got introduced to philosophy. Like another. That's awesome. Um, the Racial Contract by Charles Mills was another one of the first. We read that in my logic class, which, like, look, being at Purdue. Um, it's like a funny thing to me that that was like in my logic class. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so this was, uh, how I got introduced to philosophy was, um, through this way of thinking about what philosophy is, what it can be and what it's supposed to do.
0: That's awesome. So you're at that time in your life, 18, 19, 20 or whatever, you're coming yeah. from Northern Minnesota. You're being exposed to writers for the fir- these writers for the first time, particularly black writers for the first time. And. In exploring philosophy as something that, uh, if I understand you correctly, has, you know, import for the real world and not just like in the ontological sense, but particularly in a socio-political sense – um, yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and I worked as a community organizer the year after college nice. um, uh, with the, the America um, AmeriCorps VISTA program with the Springfield Promise Neighborhood, also in Springfield, Ohio. Um, oh, nice. And so this was sort of the bridge bet- for me between um, the th- work that I did in my undergraduate um, then doing some real work on the ground, thinking about, like, very clearly thinking about how what I just learned about can be operationalized in um, anti-racist organizing work. And then coming to Purdue from there.
0: That's awesome. So I don't mean to shamelessly self-promote, but one of the interviews we did in season one was with Sally Shoals, who is now the chair of the department of philosophy at Villanova, but she did her PhD here, mm-hmm. graduated in 93. I don't know if you had a chance to meet her when she was here. She yeah, did some of the yes. yeah, diversity mm-hmm. inclusion stuff and gave a cloak colloqu- or give a talk or whatever. Um, and, One of the things I found out or learned about her in that interview was after she did her PhD, she was working part-time, like paid hourly at a women's shelter Mm -hmm. here in Lafayette for uh, victims of domestic abuse. Um, And in that process, and she certainly said this much better than I'm about to, so apologies to Sally, but um, in that process sort of learned how... um, was able to apply her education in philosophy and philosophical thinking to this job, to working at this women's shelter, but also on maybe had um, uh, gained another level of understanding of how certain systemic, um, you know, historically produced sy- systems, I guess, or Uh, systemic ways of thinking, sorry, I'm not articulating this very well, but um, had an effect. And you know how then maybe her future research or what she wanted to focus her future research on and things she wanted to think about and so eventually she became someone who writes about political solidarity. Mm-hmm. So what you were sorry to circle back to you. So what you were saying about this this year off like that's really fascinating to me. Can you say more about um, the population you were working with and you know I mean I don't know where Springfield Ohio is or what it's like but you know what's that town like What was the day to day work you were doing and just to, real quick to jump slightly. Had but I'm assuming you took like a gap year between your undergrad and then going back to do like your master's or your PhD. Like this was the interim job you That's had. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I have been involved with the organization um, through college, like throughout college. So nice. what was the name of the organization? Uh, Springfield Promise Neighborhood. Springfield so Promise it Neighborhood. It is modeled after um, Harlem School Zone. Okay. Um, which is a place based like leadership development. Uh, approach to poverty alleviation. And so um, the idea is that if you work with people in the places that they're living in um, and you work in solidarity with them uh, to organize them to the things that they care about, the things that they have identified as important to them for the flourishing of their own communities, um, the power is in those communities already to create the change that they want to see. So it's about... Working uh, with people, organizing people, helping them to see their own power because they have power already um, to transform their neighborhoods. And the idea is that uh, if you focus on a school, on the school as like a location um, for uh, transformation, this is like a good way. So um, there's sort of like four different. Areas one it was very very school based, like curriculum based, cool. um, like early childhood education. So working with families, okay. um, with kids, um, community engagement, and then like how are these, um, how are like services and things in Springfield uh, related to the people? So like how do we get people matched up with the kinds of things that they need that are already being provided potentially? Um, so the sort of like a this comprehensive place-based, strengths-based strategy for social change. So it's not about coming in and offering something. Uh, it's about like kind of creating a container for people to take up their their own power and, and transform the community uh, in the way that they want to transform it.
0: Nice. So in a way, you're sort of empowering them just to recognize their own agency, political agency, but also maybe providing them with – Um, just access to resources that maybe they didn't know already exist just because because it's hard to know these resources exist because so many of these resources that do exist are not well advertised, and I have to guess that's for a reason, so...
1: Yeah. So there's like historical inequity problems, um, that lead to, um, these sort and, and like, uh, capitalistic concerns. Like, so for example, like a food desert is really relevant, um, to this because if people can't feel like they can make money off of having a grocery store in an area, they won't build one there, um, or they move their business away. And this is like very much, um, part of what's happening in these communities. I, I wouldn't use the term empower, but that's just oh, it's just my own my own sort of thing. But no, uh, no, say my, more say my, more about that. Not my I, I thing, didn't... but sort of just uh, in community organizing, yeah, yeah. Um, There's sort of this idea that people have power, um, and so you're not uh, like see, giving I it see. to them, yeah, yeah. Um, but you are creating sort of like helping create the conditions where that power can be utilized. Um,
0: I take System. your point. So, and sorry, I didn't mean to say that in an, for that to be insensitive. And if it was, then I appreciate the fact that I'm now enlightened to that. Um, yeah, I, just, I, I but I should say I didn't mean necessarily they don't have power in your coming in. It's just like educated, you know, savior community activist who's like, here's the power. Yeah, yeah. But no, that's a good point, though, is that, yeah, it's not about giving them a power they didn't have. It's just about recognition of the power that exists. And again, maybe the, the resources that they can take advantage of to see the change that they want to see um, in their own community. So again, the change that happens in the community isn't coming from the outside and isn't imposed by another um, perspective, historical or otherwise, mm-hmm. historical, socioeconomic, whatever it may be.
1: Yeah. And part of it is about, uh, just connecting neighbors to neighbors. So you might, um, like people know what they want. They know what would make their communities better. Um, but if, if you're facing a lot of systemic inequities, maybe you're not, um, you're not connected in the same, well, in some ways people are more connected, right? Because they're driving their neighbor to work and they're, um, sharing their garden produce and they're watching the kids. But, um, you know but it's about having conversations about what how can we take this community that we already have this well developed community uh, and leverage it um for for some um for a systemic change versus mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. and i think both both are good so it's not like as you said the most important piece is that it's not decisions coming in from the outside it's not about helping it's not about um Creating a solution from the outside and presenting it and having people um, follow it. It's about, um, yeah, creating the solution together.
0: Nice. That's awesome. Now I realize I probably used the term helping about 75 <laughs> times. And so I'm also sorry if that was incorrect. But it's, 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 the it's grindstone's to, about learning.
1: Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, there, there's, I think as philosophers, um, for me, there's always a give and take around. How picky we want to be with respect to language, because I think in some ways philosophers can just become too sensitive to these issues, like yeah, yeah. where we just think if you haven't said it right, you haven't said anything. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but then there's the contrast where it's like some things really do matter, like where people, like for example, um, when people say, "Oh, you," I gave this person a voice, for example. Yeah. Um. Versus, um, I. Amplified their voice, or I stepped back so there was room for their voice uh, that they already had. Right on. Um, and so it's, it's like these, so some of these, I think, subtle language shifts um, that acknowledge that people have power, they have knowledge, and they know what's best for them. Um, having language shifts around that seems important to me um, versus like some of the other things that philosophers may like quibble about <laughs> language wise.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes great sense. I um, kind of reminds me of a conversation sometimes around like 20th century French philosophy. Um, in speaking for, wait, is it? Oh God, it's been too long. <laughs> um, what is it? Speaking for, or speaking with? I can't mm-hmm. remember. But but the, the idea of speaking for, and if you're from a particularly privileged uh, position, you know socioeconomically educationally historically whatever it may be gender whatever the particular categorization of your um privilege to speak that yeah that there's something potentially ethically problematic with speaking for because you're making assumptions about what is right for the individual or the community which often are you know based on your own cultural perspective so precisely in this way you say like um yeah, to to, you know, open the space for someone to speak is is a much different thing than saying, you know, yeah, I gave them a voice, right, which yeah. is a very <laughs> problematic way of phrasing it. Right, um, exactly. um or at least yeah, hopefully people can see why that's problematic. Um I realize for some people it's not problematic <laughs> <Right>. at all. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, well, Linda <laughs> Alcoff talks about that in her article, The Problem of Speaking for Others, I think is what it's called. Nice. Um, so she's she's talking about the kind of the cases in which um, it makes sense uh, because you have access to the power that needs to hear it. So sometimes mm-hmm. there's – so it's not it, – none of these issues that have to do with social reality and the lived experience of people's lives, um, none of them are cut and dry because it's always – uh, has to be really sensitive to the current historical power dynamic, so it's it yeah. can't be rule based in the way the other other ways of other topics in philosophy. You can say this is the way, <laughs> and I think it's harder to do that when you're talking about people's lives.
0: No, absolutely, and it's also important to. I think you you know you raise a good point via um, uh, you know another philosopher, but. The idea that, um, yet sometimes if you're from a certain position or a certain privilege, because you have access to get people listening within that perspective, that sometimes in a sense you do have to take advantage of that perspective in a way that maybe doesn't seem to quite, um... Uh, I'm losing the idea. No, I'm not losing the idea. I can't find the right word I want to say. But um, that doesn't precisely go back to what you were saying about opening the space. Like maybe you aren't exactly, you know, allowing the space or opening the space for a particular voice to express itself. But maybe to some extent it's necessary just so that the voice can be heard at all or something like this. Does that, I mean, would you say that's fair? I mean, if that's if that sounds completely naive, please tell me that. I,
1: yeah, well, um you can think about it uh like even within a philosophy department, right? Mm-hmm. So, um say there are uh philosophy graduate students who are experiencing racism. Um it's going to be much more costly for them to try to do something about that, um which of course they could, but in terms of co- social and Um, sort of professional cost the cost is going to be really high versus if um, their advisor tenured advisors take up the cause and make new policies and institute changes um, the cost is lower so like there's all kinds of times where depending on the social positioning um, and what the costs are to taking action to um, you know, complaining to the college or the department. Um, and then this sort of is true across the board, I think. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: So that's sort of a... <clears throat> or you um, can
1: think about that power relation and then you can see how that shows up in a lot of different ways yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, So that's a microcosm or one example mm-hmm. of it. But this idea that, um, yeah, that the social and professional costs of... Um, objection, or something like that, can sometimes be too great, um, and then that, in and of itself, stifles, you know, the voicing of these objections or whatever they may be, um, in a way that then precisely doesn't work to counteract the systemic. Um, powers that are already in place or something like this
1: well yeah and it's tricky because as even as you're talking i'm thinking well we want to be in departments where people the low whatever the lowliest person can uh voice their concerns um but maybe it's not until there's been some changes made where that is true so it's like this balance between where you are where you're going um and sort of another thing with respect to organizing is you want to be strategic um, so you yeah, want to yeah. pick the, per, like, you want to pick the best way forward. Um, and sometimes, yeah, it's just the best way forward is different depending on the features of the case. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I should say, I believe me, I support people. I'm a big fan of the human voice. <laughs> you know, just, like, I want people to vote. But I just, yeah, that's what's hard. And I guess um, sometimes that's why... I mean, universities are kind of a great microcosm for this. That um, to go back to what you're saying about, you know like neighbors being neighbors. I mean, that's also why, and it looks, it's probably gonna sound really corny, but just like being a compassionate, good listener and understanding the situation that someone is experiencing, particularly when it's a vastly different situation than you're experiencing as a graduate student, as a member of faculty, is. but also just as a person in the world at any job, in any neighborhood, in any place. Um, yeah, and that, yeah. Uh, I I guess in some ways that's, you know, a crucial component of this is that people that do feel like they need to voice, you know, their concerns or their objections to certain systemic processes um, are supported not just by the people that maybe um, also experience these situations, but yeah. Yeah. Well, people that what, are open to the fact that they're happening, even though they aren't directly affected by it personally. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what Sally is talking about, right? When she's talking about solidarity, she's yeah, saying, yeah. I can see. Um, I can Welcome see. to the Sally Schultz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fan club. Uh, We're on no. Facebook. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I think uh, it's interesting and cool to see um, another philosopher who – has done some um, community and a lot of philosophers have, but um, who have done some community organizing or community work or um, direct service work um, there. They're, you're able to see um, the influence that has on their philosophic work, which I think is really, and for me, it like, I have, I have to say that as a part of my um, sort of research methodology, because I don't come up with any, sort of idea for a paper or idea for anything that's not connected to the work that I've done. So for me, um, being involved in like anti-racist organizing is, uh, a big part of how I do like my philosophic thinking or or research.
0: No, that's awesome that you have that, you know, real world experience guiding your, your research and, and your research output. Um, maybe sadly lacking broadly speaking in philosophy, but uh, not, I guess not my place to, <laughs> to comment <laughs> on that. But um, no, that's that's awesome. Um, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, I mean, we're kind of talking about some of the The background to um, the dissertation, and as you just said, um, sounds like it was based on some real-world experience for you, some professional experience for you, or community organizing and activist experience for you. Um, But so you just recently defended it. Have you deposited it yet? I have, yes. Okay, let me ask you, in all honesty, what was more difficult, writing the (laughs) dissertation or depositing it?
1: Well, uh, thankfully, my deposit experience was very smooth. Thank so you to so the Purdue thesis yeah. Deposit office um, Sh- yeah
0: shout out to uh, for... I think her name's Ashley Messersmith. Smith. <laughs> yeah, I might yes, be wrong yeah. there, but in the in the ETD, the uh-huh. electronic thesis the d- deposit or whatever um no she mine was very smooth too, but I heard people had like nightmares, and it sounded like, oh my God, you put in all that work and then defended it and it sounds like the hardest part was the right
1: well sometimes I deposit. Think I really worry about people's fluency with Microsoft Word because I'm like, it wasn't that hard. But sorry to all the people that had trouble with that.
0: Well, sorry. I mean, let me just say, though, uh, if there is such a thing as fluency with Microsoft Word, you know, uh, I'm waiting to meet somebody who's fluent in Microsoft Word. Not to discredit your, your phrasing, but, I mean, the number of times just in my life that I've had to say, no, Microsoft Word, I didn't want to indent everything right, in this right. document. I just wanted to indent that one Roman numeral cuz that's the start of a new section. Anyway, that's a separate podcast.
1: <laughs> the ills oh, of Microsoft Word yeah. for a philosopher. <laughs> yes.
0: And let us just say that in no way are we taking issue with Microsoft because we realize it's a big company. We love Microsoft. Yeah. yeah. Also though we aren't uh, supported by Microsoft. So right. okay, neutrality. Right. Anyway,
1: no. <laughs> I'm we like LaTeX too. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah we're, we're open source and just we're, we're just we're just open on the grindstone. Um, so the title of the dissertation was That's Also Racist, also in parentheses, uh, exclamation point. That's also racist entity type pluralism, responsibility, and liberatory norms. Um, I apologize for the ignorance. What is, in a nutshell, if it is even possible, entity type pluralism?
1: Oh, good. Um, Okay, so... 60 seconds or less. Part of what I'm doing is engaging um, in the individualist versus structuralist debate within accounts of racism and accounts of oppression um, in general. So what we have is um, these people who may not have been identified as individualists. Maybe they identified themselves as individualists. So these are people who think um, that sort of the core things that we should analyze with respect to racism are within individuals or our individuals themselves so either um sort of that racism is in the heart it's in how they feel about other people or the way that they disregard other people um or maybe it's in the head it's about their beliefs um so they believe that some races are superior to others etc so there's this broad family of views um that are individualist and and sometimes implicit bias uh, gets cashed out as um, an individualist strategy um but you know, we could talk about that <laughs> later. Um, and then there's the, the structuralists um, who kind of think the normative core or the things that we should be most concerned about with respect to racism are structures. Um, so it's like the the ways in which uh, the our society is ordered um, that keeps people from being able to um, express their like full range of freedom. Um, so it limits their choices and options, and that's really what's wrong um, What's wrong with racism or other social oppressions. Okay, so that's sort of the background piece is this individualist-structuralist divide. Um, there's been sort of a little bit of back and forth um, on these things. So uh, Sally Haslinger wrote a critique of implicit bias as too individualistic. Uh, and okay. and then Alex Madva wrote this paper called Anti-Anti-Individualism. So, <laughs> so he's saying, I don't want to be an individualist, but I think that there are, um, not in this other sense, but I think that there are a lot of um, things that individuals have to do um, in order for a long-term positive social change to occur. So he doesn't okay. want to lose that piece. Um, okay, and so and then Dan Kelly and I have a paper um, talking about this third layer, norms that mitigate between individuals and structures. Um, we th- talk about informal structures um, or informal institutions and formal institutions. Anyway, so that's just, that's the background. Sorry, debate. real
0: quick, just mm-hmm. Professor Dan Kelly, or Dr. Oh. Dan Kelly was a professor here in the ph- Department of Philosophy at Purdue who was on your committee.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that paper is in the Journal of Applied Philosophy, if you want to check it out. Um, What's the name
0: of the paper? Do you remember offhand? It
1: is called Minding the Gap, Soft Structures, Informal Institutions, something like that.
0: Awesome. <laughs> oh, Sorry, that's a great in Minding Title. the Gap is... there a colon is, in it? There is a colon oh, after we Minding really the need Gap.
1: Dan Kelly doesn't write a paper without a colon, so... <laughs> He's the king of the colon. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Okay, so the the reason why uh, we need this background is to try to understand what entity type pluralism is. So, so what I claim in the in the dissertation. Just to
0: refresh, so the background to it is individualist versus structuralist um, theories. Yeah, debate.
1: Sort of like this push and pull that we have to choose. We got to be one or the other. Um, so what I'm trying to articulate in the dissertation is um, what I call entity type pluralism. Um, so sort of what my aim to do is to say, um, both individualists and structuralists um, mistakenly and unnecessarily uh, restrict, the kinds of things in the world. So I call them entities, the kinds of entities, um, that they want to apply their predicate racist to, or the kind of, uh, entities that they think are primarily involved with racism. Uh, they want to okay. restrict that to individuals okay. or structures. Okay. Um, and I argue that we should be pluralists with respect to the kinds of entities we think are involved with racism. So part of what I want to do, um, is, introduce the idea that it's not nonsensical to say um is this chair racist is this is the um way that this university is laid out racist um is uh this shirt that was probably made by sweatshop laborers racist uh and so to really open the door to talk about all kinds of entities. Um, And so it's a way of providing a way out of the debate. So instead of being stuck um, uh, in answering the question, are you an individualist? Are you a structuralist? I want there to be an option, a very solid option, that is, no, I'm not either one. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
1: that's sort of the the move with entity-type pluralism.
0: So it becomes an entity oriented understanding of racism, where those entity could be presumably people and institutions or structures, much like in the individuals for structural debate debate, excuse me, but also um objects. Yeah, um, objects. architectures mm-hmm. or um, the infrastructures, like physical infrastructure, like you said, the layout of a campus or something like this. Um,
1: but also, um, in th- I really also want to include solidly um, those informal institutions. So things like norms, um, patterns of behavior. Right. Um, you know, for example, like that, we spread um, job openings by word of mouth. Um, you know, so if a university, um, or any workplace really is all white people and white people mostly hang out with other white people. Um, and so when they spread the job opening by word of mouth, this maintains their company or their business as an all white business. Um, and they would say, Oh, I haven't done anything. Um, I don't have any, I don't have any beliefs. There's no formal policy about who we hire. Um, but there's this like a way of behaving, um,
0: and sort of institutionalized, if informal network of who's going to be privy to, say, these opportunities, whatever it is, job opportunity, grant funding, again, kind of speaking, like, say, from the perspective of, like, people on a university campus, is that, is that if I understand you correctly, that's what you're saying? So, like, in this example of a job, if you look at the demographics of an office and there's a job opened, and yeah, okay, they post it online, but probably who's going to get the word of mouth and get the sort of inside track to the interviews It's going to be the people that know the people that are already at this organization or whatever, and maybe it's reasonable to think that those people are going to be people that look like them and are of a similar socioeconomic or educational background. and Yeah.
1: Yeah, Um, and so uh, another... <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So that's right. Um, and I want to I want to be able to analyze all those things, and I want to um, be able to say that they all are a part of what racism is. That mm-hmm. they're all of those things are working together. Um, and part of the reason why I'm able to do this, um, or the um, reason why I want to maintain this, is because I also want to be causally pluralist. So a lot of times, what happens is people focus on what they think is the worst um, outcome of racism. And they say, what causes that really bad outcome? Okay. And then it would be, oh, uh, everything, that, um, everything that counts as racism has to be caused by the same mechanism, same social mechanism. Um, and so this is a lot of structuralists are this way, right? Okay. So what they want to do is they want to identify, um, the ca- like social, causal, temporal mechanism, um, of racism. And, but okay. then what happens, and this is, um, Leonard Harris is, has a lot of work on this as well. Um, what happens is that, uh, if things aren't caused by that, then we say, oh, that's not racism. Um, uh, okay, it's something else, and so part of what I'm trying to do in, in addition to entity so, type, sorry, plural, just yeah. so you
0: for this for things to be called racist by this way of thinking, you need to see the clear causal connection between the established cause and the outcome. Yes. and if you say, well, the outcome appears on the surface to be racist, but actually it's not caused by this, ergo, it's not racist, and mm-hmm. that can clearly be problematic because. If the effect is, in fact, racist, um, it should not come down to, I think, what you're saying, the necessity of a relation to a particular cause for it to be described as such.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this is what... uh, Dr. Harris calls the explanatory accounts or logic based accounts of racism. Um,
0: oh, real quick, so also this is Dr. Leonard Harris, who was also here at the Purdue um Department of Philosophy, who was, I believe, the chair of your dissertation, correct?
1: Uh Dan Kelly was Dan the chair. Dan Kelly was, yep. sorry.
0: And but okay, so Dan Kelly was the chair, but Dr. Harris was on the on yes. the committee, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um sorry, okay, so yeah, and he's uh, saying
1: much of the um sort of the framework around accounts of racism, um, comes from um, Dr. Harris's work specifically um on Necro being as a new kind of a newer paper um, out an actuarial account of racism, where he develops this account of necro being that's a descriptive account directly uh, as opposed to these explanatory accounts. Um, yeah, so these, this is kind of like very nitty- gritty with respect to what accounts of racism do, um what we should. Uh, how we should expect them to proceed. And so a lot of the beginning of my dissertation is just trying to lay out what the options are, what people have done, what strategies they've taken, and then c- trying to show the ways in which the accounts have been limited um, by deciding to focus on a certain set of entities as cause either causally important or important like for moral evaluation. And so trying to articulate that clearly so we can see um why are people disagreeing where are the what is like um what are the similarities between accounts of racism uh things like that
0: to go back to one of uh dr harris's uh concepts so what it is is it necrobeing? did i understand yes, what is that?
1: what is that um, so necro being is the tragic misery of experiencing racism. Um, and it comes from like Momembe's living death idea or it's similar. Huh. Maybe it doesn't come from it, but it right um, has this similar idea. So he, um, in providing his account of necrobeing, um, Dr. Harris wants to focus on the descriptive features of what it's like Um, when you're experiencing racism all the time. Um, And he talks about Necrobean and this actuarial account. So the reason why it's actuarial is that health gets transferred, health and life gets transferred from some people um, to other people. So people of color's life and health gets transferred um, to white people so that they have longer life expectancies and experience less Mm -hmm. misery and harm Mm -hmm. um, with Mm -hmm. respect to racism.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: And for Harris Necker being a, the uh, this tragic situation where that's like um unredeemable, right? Because it's just unredeemable death. There's nothing um mm. coming from it. There's no redemption with respect to the tragedy and suffering um that comes from racism. Hmm.
0: Interesting. And so this is something he's been developing recently and it plays a role um in, in your dissertation this is also a concept that you're developing there yes um moving on and not that i don't want to talk about this more yeah. but um you had mentioned kind of jumping back in the in the we're sort of limited with time here so i did want to just touch on one thing you had mentioned implicit bias earlier and again uh, much like putting you on the spot with entity type pluralism which thank you by the way that was a I, I actually understand it, and now that's, that's saying, that. Well, that is because that's saying a lot. Because, uh, yeah, there, there. I don't understand much, and listeners will know that by this point. Um, the so the idea of implicit bias, I've seen, um, you know, articles about it, and sort of heard it, uh, even like in teaching the data ethics class, kind of um, veered in that direction when thinking about like bias algorithms and stuff. You know, like even just doing like sort of basic searches for things to read or to have students read. I started to see that crop up a lot. Um, but for myself and for listeners, could you maybe, in a nutshell, if possible, explain implicit bias, which I realize these are very um, big and loaded concepts, but just
1: sure. Um, how, so... how would you
0: explain it to say yours truly?
1: Oh, good. Um, so <laughs> I <laughs> Okay, so um, the idea is that implicit bias is um, biases that you have that may not come under your conscious awareness. Uh, they're automatic. They may be opaque to you, so you can't see them upon reflection. Um, but if we're talking about implicit bias with respect to the implicit association test, or so the sort of coming out of psychology, um, there's a test that tests your um, – Sort of strength of association between two concepts, um, a racial concept and a valence, positively and negatively valenced concept. So, okay. good or bad is okay. the best way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, what happens is, it turns out that a lot of white people um, have a negative racial biases or associations um, that may lead them to. Um, have racially biased behaviors in their interactions with people of color, so it is a it's a concept that helps us understand um, interactions between people, um, and also um, not just interactions, but uh, so like some famous cases are like the CV case. So um, you're looking, you're deciding who you're going to hire for a philosophy job. You're looking at the hundreds of CVs that you've received, um, and if you're implicitly. By negatively implicitly biased against black people you're going to um, maybe review those um, cvs less favorably than you would if they have a um, sort of traditionally black name or associated um, with black people the name um, or the school um, so like say they went to a historically black university right 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 um, and so and but that the sort of the tricky or the trick or whatever about implicit bias is supposed to be your you don't know that you're doing it so yeah. if somebody asked you about it you would say oh no i would never do that um you know i have you might even have like avowed commitments or beliefs um to racial equity um so or you know wh- well you might even have it like an avowed belief to like i will treat everyone equally which is not we can talk about that at a different time, but not a belief that I think is a good good one to wave your flag on. But anyway, mm-hmm. the point is that you have avowed beliefs that are not um consistent with the way that you're behaving. So it's um uh this raises a problem for people that wanna have these commitments to equity or um to an anti racist future. Um, because it seems like there's a knowledge problem. It seems like um they can't know that they're doing this thing. Um, and so, or, and it also seems like they don't have control over it, which for the moral responsibility literature, there's been a bunch of problems. So, there's philosophic issues abound with respect to implicit bias, <laughs> which is why we saw this um, huge growth um, of, of implicit bias research, because there's both in philosophy of mind, um, moral responsibility, um, philosophy of race, uh, gender. Uh, because because we have implicit biases, not just about race, um, but about uh, all kinds of social categories.
0: Yeah, when we were, so um, one of the things I was reading when I was teaching the data ethics class, so to go back to what you were saying with like um, uh, software programs that have been generated to help employers hire more quickly. And yeah, you put a thousand of them through and like the 30 that ultimately go to the, like the hiring person's desk. Um, yeah, tend to be white people of a certain educational background, and then one of the things they realized was that based on names, uh, regions of the country, like wherever the address was for where this person was applying from, they had their address on it. Um, but names and school where they received their degrees were like automatically like kicking people out, and often these tend to be, um. Gender-based or racially-based determinations, maybe, but again, maybe not explicitly on the in the mind of the programmer who wrote this algorithm. Mm-hmm. But that's the result. That's the output. Is you take one stack and say, "Here's our thirty best candidates," and they just happen to look like the person who's doing the hiring, and you know, went to a similar school and are from a similar part of the country and have all the same beliefs and the same <laughs> worldview. It just happened that way, and everyone that was in the you know the sort of pile of rejections or whatever um and that was really fascinating to me just to see how there's the i mean happens with um credit scoring algorithms any kind of like financial algorithms um that's also a vast field and there's different reasons why these things work for and against people but i I think what we can agree is that um what ends up getting manifested in these algorithms is an implicit bias on behalf of the programmers, the coders, or the people that are developing this software oftentimes. I know you weren't necessarily speaking about software, and it's much bigger than that, because it's also in human interaction, you know, interpersonal interaction or whatever, interpersonal communication, but um, as, say, one microcosm, and so I can feel comfortable talking about this, talking <laughs> about something I know about. No, yeah. no, but um, yeah, like, say, with data ethics, you know, that's, when you talk about bias algorithms, a lot of the, it's down to the implicit biases of the of the programmers or the people who developed the software.
1: Yeah, and and I think, um, for for me, implicit bias is a very useful tool, um, especially if we're talking to white people. Um, I'm also white, uh, so I'm thinking a lot about talking to white people about racism and what our responsibilities are and how we can um, go about fulfilling some of those responsibilities, how we can be accountable to anti-racism and anti-racist aims. Um, So I think implicit bias can be a really useful tool for showing, proving, et cetera, um, that that you're like, have racist inclinations or you are racist, depending on how you want to think about it. Um, even if you don't want to be, even if you <laughs> feel like you're pure of heart, even if you <laughs> feel like you're a good white person, quote. Yeah. Um, so I think it can be a useful tool, but I also think it can be dangerous in terms of um, what it achieves, uh, because part of, part of what happens is that when we rely on a psychological test, Um, we remove um, we remove the person from having to listen to the testimony of people of color that either they have harmed or that other people have harmed Um, and I think being able to listen to and um, understand and bring on board the testimonies about racism Mm -hmm. um, is much more important than like being convinced that you're like subtly racist so I think it's an I think we mm-hmm. have to be careful with our strategy with respect to what I'm um, talking about and utilizing implicit bias. I think...
0: Because maybe in a way, sorry, like it can just become an easy excuse. Like, well, I didn't mean to be yes. racist. It's just that I have these implicit biases. And by definition, they're just things I'm not aware of. Is that kind of what you're well, saying? Well,
1: that- I think there's two two things. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, So I think that there are some... Some people um, in or like some trends in the moral responsibility literature where it's been like that, like you can't possibly be responsible for your implicit biases because um, they're not under your control. I mean, most people don't say that. Most people um, make an argument for how we can be held responsible for implicit biases. So like Michael Brownstein says um, that implicit biases can be attributable to us um, in what we direct our attention to and what we care about. So. Um there are people who certainly don't want to paint the picture like everyone's trying to get out um out of at least in philosophy everyone's trying to get out of being responsible. Um but I think sort of the average person that's a common response is like how could I possibly not do this um because I don't even know about it. So I think that is one response, but I'm I'm more worried about a further response and and this concern comes from um janine week schroer who's at the university of minnesota duluth um and she she talks about how implicit bias um actually she's not talking about implicit bias she's talking about microaggressions um and the stereotype threat um literature and i use it use sort of her ideas to talk about implicit bias um but the (laughs) redirection of our attention to sort of scientific studies about racism versus um, the testimonies that talk about the harms and hurts of racism um, can be sort of damaging to what the purpose of the anti-racist project is, which is one of the things uh, that we're trying to do is to, to get white people to understand testimonies and understand that they're complicit in harms, um, and understand that they perpetuate racism, white supremacy, et cetera, um, through their, through their actions and inactions. Um, and, and pointing to a psychological test, I, doesn't always do that. I think it can be useful. Um, but I think we have to be careful with it.
0: Nice. Um, we're we're out of time, Lacey, but this was so fun, so awesome. Real quick though, I just wanna wish you the best of luck. So our guest today was Doctor recently, Doctor Lacey Davidson, who just graduated with her PhD from Purdue here, and you are now on your way to California Lutheran University, where you'll be a visiting assistant professor. Safe travels, best of luck. Um real quick one thing that you're really looking forward to in the transition to California? Not necessarily about the school or the job. What's one thing you're looking forward to?
1: I'm excited because my brother and sister both live in Southern California. so family. I'm somebody that got to get closer to their family through through getting a job which doesn't always happen so that's exciting
0: that's awesome so best of luck i'm sure you're going to do great um again your recently defended dissertation is that's also racist entity type pluralism responsibility and liberatory norms Lacey, you have anything coming out in publication that you want to mention
1: um yeah there's a new book um coming out it's called overcoming epistemic injustice uh and um my, I have an article in there that talks about implicit bias. It's called um, "When Testimony Isn't Enough: Implicit Bias as Epistemic Exclusion." So some of the worries that I was talking about with respect to implicit bias, are nice, um, fleshed out, are there. really there, and and awesome. that's, it's going to be a great book. Lots of great contributors, so I'm really excited um, to to read all the rest of the contributions.
0: Awesome. Again, Lacey, thanks so much for taking the time and visiting us here in the Grindstone podcast studios the official studios um this was fun to listeners out there thanks for listening and tune in next week for our next interview thanks so much see ya
1: thank you the grindstone is brought to you by the department of philosophy at purdue university and is supported by the college of global arts at purdue our intro and outro music is by al terity
0: You can follow the department of philosophy at purdue on facebook at philosophy at purdue on twitter at philo
1: all caps p-h-i-l-o underscore purdue and on instagram at philo underscore purdue